mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue, and I'm that feeling you get after a one-night stand when you'd rather chew your arm off than wake him. Joining me is Russian teaser who can't fight the moonlight, Hannah Rosewoods. <laughs> You're not Russian, but are you a tease? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry, what a horrible question to come in on. I think um, I think in the film, the Russian tease is told that she's not allowed to be a slut if she is also a tease. So there's, there's a dilemma there. <laughs> I think those two concepts can exist at once. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so today you're bringing to the garbage truck uh, Coyote Ugly. I am my problematic fave. Oh, it's so good though. <laughs> um, tell me what made you choose it. I mean, I think, I mean, it is in some ways genuine garbage and it is mm. incredibly sentimental, but I have a real soft spot for it and I kind of want to rehabilitate it as a cultural artifact from like a very specific point in yes. like kind of Y2K, early noughties. Yes. Completely. I think it occupies a str- really strange but important waypoint mm. of the like feminism's journey between girl power, like after girl power and pre Catla Moran. Yeah. I see that as being very much an era yeah. of like um where it's like where the, the word ladette was suddenly a thing. The idea of being a page three girl was kind of lightly aspirational. People were always calling Katie Price an amazing businesswoman. Mm. <laughs> and it was like this thing of like hypersexuality, sex tapes, the idea that Paris Hilton would make money off her own sex tape was a thing. This idea of like hypersexuality being this thing that you could own and possess. And that was a feminist act. Yeah. Because, and I kind of think... It represents these sort of two ideas of feminism, doesn't it? Because there's one form of feminism that is, I think, much more current, which is it is our job to change the world and change how the world sees women. And then there's this other kind of feminism that's a bit, I guess you could call it streetwise, which is like men are pigs Mm. and men will always find a way to monetize our sexuality. So if if we own the store kind of thing, it's empowering. And I feel yeah. like that that move this movie. I'm not going to say it explores that because <laughs> I think that gives it more credit than it's due. I think the film is not quite sure what kind of feminism it's about. I think it definitely presents itself as a tale of empowerment, yes, and a kind of raunchier brand of girl power. I think it prefigured so much in Naughty's culture, like kind of dirty era Christina, everyone yes. wearing thongs, everyone having like a Playboy little you know dangling thing on their phone case, yes. yes. Um, and I think it offered this like incredibly. I think it genuinely meant well this brand of like mm-hmm. I mean so called stiletto feminism, yeah. But I think it offered this genuinely naive, optimistic vision of the social contract where 
I think they just said, well, okay, women, has it occurred to you that, you know, you can simply be both very feminine, very mm-hmm. girly, dance very beautifully, also have this kind of like hard, kind of bro-y, badass edge where, yes. you know, you drink men under the table. If they threaten you at any point, you just you just fell them with a quip. You just have to be like quicker and wittier than yeah, they are. Yeah. You know, you can like dominate them with your sexuality, kind of keep yourself in the gaze. And like, that's how you overcome patriarchy. Just be better than men, like in yeah. every single possible <laughs> way, whilst also yeah. very feminine. Yeah. Stronger, hotter, better, <laughs> can play pool, can do every. Yeah, mm. exactly. You, you have to be able to hang yourself upside down by your feet on yeah. a pipe and then you can you can have equality. <laughs> I think when... um. When Violet, Piper Perabo, when she first walks into the bar and she gets like her like trial shift, yeah. um, the manager says to her, you just have to look available all the time, but never be available. Yes. Yeah. That is it, isn't it? And it's like that is and it's weird because it's not quite a strip club. It's not quite Hooters. Mm. It is kind of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like. I think it also, it's this thing of, it's this kind of genre of movie that I don't think is given, you know how the way a horror movie is meant to be predictable and a horror mm. movie is meant to be schlocky, it's meant to have these certain waypoints where like the killer arrives, the victim, you know, we they all have all these genre signposts, right? Um, I think Coyote Ugly exists in a different kind of unofficial genre, mm. which is the sleepover movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is like the idea of a sleepover movie. It's not to be original. It's like I'm I'm counting sort of glitter is a sleepover movie. Coyote Ugly, um, Crossroads, the Britney Spears yeah. film, Burlesque, the which is they're all they're all the same yeah. film. They're all like young woman with a dead mother um, <laughs> has a dream. <laughs> but I do think it's extraordinary that like it became a sleepover film, which it yeah. very much is. You know, it's based on, very loosely yes. based on um, a GQ article by Elizabeth Gilbert, like pre Pray Love, um, who wrote about working in this bar. And it was when she was still in her very kind of like imitating Hemingway mode. Yes. And she was very interested in like hyper masculine culture. Yeah. Um, and she, she like described the piece as kind of, she aimed it as like a Charles Bukowski type short story from yeah. a woman's perspective where she kind of like was talking to these like regulars in the bar like do you know that this is how we see you yes Um, yes but I think she said she was absolutely astounded when she kind of saw that it was being aimed at a preteen audience because as far as she was concerned it was you know about the story was about the kind of like ineffable indefinable like charisma and magic of what makes a good bar yeah and it was an incredibly kind of adult male yeah. Vision. And very yeah. much like an alcoholic culture. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? She talks about regulars and she talks about like, um, and I'm sure I'll be reading from bits of that GQ article, which was published in 97, I think. Um, this idea of like, yes, you could call everybody in this bar lowlifes and losers, but I was a lowlife. I was a loser. Yeah. I was heartbroken. This was my life. The fact that I could be sort of queen of this gutter meant everything to me. And this is all entrenched deeply in kind of alcoholism, mm. right? And like the idea that these women and their sexuality would squeeze these alcoholics for as much as they yeah, possibly yeah. could. And they relied on regulars. And that doesn't exist in the film. Yeah. Alcohol doesn't even really exist in the film. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Which I find fascinating. Like it's there as a prop, but like no one's ever drunk. None of the girls are ever drunk. I just can't believe, like, Jerry Bruckheimer, the like the producer, kind of just saw this story and thought, like, this, yeah, this will inspire preteen girls. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, like, fair enough, alcohol isn't centred, but definitely, like, 
extra, like sexuality is very centered yes. in like in a way that's not intuitive to pitch to a preteen girl audience yeah. kind of performing the male gaze to each other yeah totally if you think of this as like on the VHS you know shelf next to like save the last dance and that kind mm. of thing <laughs> like yeah it, it it's sort of like you know if if Britney Spears' Crossroads is a Barbie doll then this is the Bratz dolls. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it has a very Bratz dolls energy. I mean, like, I think I was like 10 when the film came out and I probably watched it on DVD mm-hmm. when I was a little bit older, but I, like, I definitely wasn't a teenager. But I think it did, it just it sounds so strange to say it now, but I think yeah. it did genuinely seem kind of revolutionary. Yes, it did. Because I, I think so much of like teen and preteen girly culture was like very saturated with like, Britney Spears, like mm. she's she's a virgin, she's the good girl. Yeah. Or you could be Christina Aguilera, she's like the bad slutty <laughs> one. And like there was that very clear dichotomy. Yes. And I, what I quite like about this film is how genuinely sincere and sentimental it is. Like Piper still, Violet, the character played yeah. by Piper Perabo, she still remains this like very sweet, nice person. Yeah. She's like still in touch with her friends from her, you know, small town New Jersey upbringing. There's no sense that she has to like become a different person to embrace yeah. kind of raunchy yeah. sexuality. That it's just something that, you know, she just enjoys doing and it brings her out of her shell. And it, it is, I do find it quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing of like she's this gifted songwriter but she's too shy to ever perform and she's like quite mealy mouthed in general mm. and the idea of like oh finding finding confidence through yeah. bartending <laughs> it's quite fun um, I'm going to do a plot summary um, okay Coyote Ugly is a 2000 movie about an aspiring songwriter, Violet, who moves to New York and quickly begins working at Coyote Ugly, a rowdy bar that is owned and run by women. Coyote Ugly is aggressively sexual. (laughs) And while not quite a strip club, the girls dance on the bar, flirt with customers and generally do hot girl shit. Violet tries to pursue her career as a songwriter while working at the bar and finding love. But is working at the bar helping Violet gain confidence or consuming her identity completely? And when I wrote that plot summary, because it's quite hard, like I was um, trying to explain this film to my boyfriend yesterday, and uh, he he'd only seen the music video mm. with Leanne Rhymes dancing in the moon, dancing in the moonlight, can't yeah. fight the moonlight. The moonlight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was like, "What? Well, it's just about a bunch of women who own a bar and they get rowdy." And I was like, "Kind of, yeah, that's it. That is kind <laughs> of it." But there are so many like this is one of those movies that I kind of would love to see remade in the way that Elizabeth Gilbert intended it. You know, they're thinking of making a sequel. <gasps> uh, Tyra Banks desperately wants the sequel to happen. But I think everyone else is not quite sure how they would update it for like the feminism of yeah. 2020s. <laughs> but I, like, I genuinely think it's at least four films. Yes, yes. Like, on the one hand, it's this very straightforward, like, American dream Cinderella fairy tale mm-hmm. of sweet small town girl that has a dream of making it in the big city. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they've also like you know, there's a romance in there yeah. um, with like this impossibly beautiful guy played by Adam Garcia who just looks like a baby John Travolta. There's Kevin this very like O'Donnell. Saturday Night Fever vibe. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but then it's also like a coming of age tale about her relationship with her father. Yes, and then it's also like a kind of girl power, women running the show film as well. Yes, yes, and it's also this story about like. And I do think that central question would have been so would it, could have made for a really like properly good film if it was like the idea of like is this enabling you to be a more confident person and put yourself out there more and all that, 
or is it just like consuming your identity? There's a part towards the end of the movie where they <laughs> they have that inevitable third act, no one's talking to her moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, Kevin is, I just, I, I long for a day when, when romantic leads were just called Kevin. <laughs> it's mad to me. Um, and so he collects comic books. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in the original draft, he was actually supposed to be like, you know, involved in seedy drug culture mm. but they went no it's no, for teenagers it's, he'll be <laughs> dealing in comic books <laughs> he'll be dealing in comic books um, he's like oh this is like a place for you to like put your head in the sand and not be a real singer song or a real artist mm. kind of thing and I was like oh that is that is the most interesting version I think of the film yeah is someone dissolving into this lifestyle but and forgetting what they came to the city mm. for which is how I would rewrite it. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'd rewrite it as women running the show. Really, I think it's. I think. I think it's so interesting to compare it to Hustlers. Yes, I love. Hustlers. I think that's the film it would be if it was made yes. now. Yes, because there. I think. I wish they'd explored the kind of darker side of women reclaiming their sexuality. Yeah, like just if they delved a bit more into the morality of. Is it like is it utopian to kind of treat men like crap? (laughs) I believe it is. Is that what quality looks like? Like you know, we accept objectification, but we also treat you like crap. Yes, that's it. That's you found it. It's utopia. (laughs) Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the earlier parts of the movie, but for me, it really begins when she's in that diner. With her last like two bucks eating her apple pie, and then the coyotes come in and they're all reading Playboy, mm. and Tyra Banks is like on her last shift basically, and like just I'm... looking unbelievably luminous. Unbelievable. And she uh, she has like three scenes in that film. Yeah, I know, but she's so she's so a big part yeah. of the my uh, the cultural consensus of that movie, and it's so weird because like we've done America's Next Top Model episode. I feel like Tyra Banks is a woman of like highly like it's like she has a bipolar disorder for charisma mm. do you know but just mm. for charisma like sometimes she's the most charismatic person ever and sometimes she's like a wooden human created by robots <laughs> and you don't know what you're going to get and she and, and it kind of oscillates so much but this version of Tyra Banks I kind of forgot it existed she's so natural yeah and so gorgeous and so fun and she just looks like she exists in like a higher definition to all the people around yes. her and everyone in the film is beautiful <laughs> God, they're so gorgeous. <laughs> and this, like, when you just see them and she's there, like, the styling is so expert in this. Um, I think we both read the same um, oral history that was in The mm. Ringer by, I think, by Kate Lloyd. So well compiled, really long. I really recommend everyone um, get it together. But they uh, use the, the, the stylist on the movie was Madonna's stylist. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. Mm. The styling in this movie is incredible. This thing of like having Violet's character be very like Laura Ashley, very cardigans, like not unattractive Mm. and not, you don't, when you meet the character, you don't think of her as dressing in a dowdy way, but then you see her in comparatively. (laughs) It is like a pigeon and parakeets, isn't it? Mm. And just like the, the leopard print, like skin tight chaps and the like the little fluffy crop tops and leather halters mm. and when you see them it is just like these creatures they're so that to me like when I think of this as my my, my early sleepover memories and watching this movie to me that's act one scene one like that's how when it opens it's such a I think the fashion like its influence has been under acknowledged culturally yes yes like everything they're wearing in that film it looks like you could just buy from Pretty Little Thing or Miss Guy did now 
everything they're wearing has been advertised to me on an Instagram advert yeah. for what's a horrible shop called again? Is it cider? I don't know. But um, yeah, it's like that. It's like um, the same idea of the fashion in Clueless, but like turned up, yeah. the, the contrast turned up way high and given the sort of masculine rock star type like of Like biker edge. dystopia. Biker yeah. dystopia, <laughs> or biker utopia almost. <laughs> and it's like, and this idea as well that like, and I really, I think I internalise this, of the fact that they're all reading Playboy. Mm. On their, like, they come off this sort of like, you know, eight or ten hour shift, it's like three or four in the morning and they're reading Playboy. I have really like, I don't know... Were you the kind of teen girl who really, you know, bought into that kind of ladette culture and that thing of reading Nuts magazine and Zoo? Because I definitely was. I think I internalised it yeah. in a way that it has taken me, like, years to unpick the extent. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, I used to read those magazines and they would always be, like, a girl intern character almost. Mm. There would always be, like, some girl who's, like wearing a button down and doing the agony ant column or something or like they would show pictures of the offices and there would always be like one very hot blonde girl hanging out being a mm. lad and that was just my fantasy I'm not like other girls yeah, yeah. exactly which is so funny because um, as we, we, we mentioned Elizabeth Gilbert a minute ago like and that part of her career this thing of her being this kind of proto-Hemingway character mm. um, like I'm a huge fan of hers and I've done two episodes on mm. her and I will probably do a third um, but it was a very annoying part of her career. Yeah. Of and like even that article is about all her, about all her regulars being in love with her and how she's just so effortless and how she dances on the bar and stuff. It's, yeah. like, it's like quite annoying. She's like, you know, you all watched me. I think she kind of repeatedly in the article, she's like, I wasn't the prettiest girl in the bar, but I was the one everyone looked to. Yeah, but I don't know. I think just Naughty's culture did have a really ambivalent relationship to girliness I think that there was a very seductive promise yeah of a very feminine girl that behaved like men yeah yeah but in the right way yeah it, it couldn't it was like yes she drinks beers and yes she it's, it's the cool girl thing all over again mm. it's often like she drinks beer and she eats hot dogs and she loves baseball but she doesn't shit yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean and then I think like when's gone girl is that like 10 years after Coyote Ugly, yeah, like it's yeah. it's turned so the dream has turned so dark and sour compared to like the optimistic Disney narrative. Yes, yes, the yeah. the dream and the dream is definitely centered and and um, it's most heightened in that Bridget Moynihan character, mm. who of course we all know went on to play Natasha in Sex and the City. <laughs> I don't know if you're a Sex and the City fan, are no, you? No, I'm not. Oh no, I saw your eyes <laughs> flicker and I was like, oh no, she knows she's in trouble. <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Based on this sighting of the coyotes, she tracks, she, she kind of overhears that Tyra Banks is leaving her job to go to law school, which is like very much like the scriptwriter putting a yeah. point on it, isn't it? Like, <laughs> these girls are clever too. They go to law school. And then she seeks out Lil, mm. who I think is the only insert from the original piece that Elizabeth yeah. wrote in that GQ thing and she's like rough and tough and she's like um, I think she's describing that Elizabeth Gilbert piece as having like being blonde and having the body of a figure skater yeah. which is definitely translates and covered in tattoos and uh, it's like oh, she's like holding around crates and she's like yeah this is my space and um, what, what I found quite interesting was the thing first thing she asks her is do you do drugs yeah. and then she says show me your arms mm. and I never got it until this this watching that she's looking for tracks. Yeah. Which is quite like... <laughs> well, I, so I heard that the film, that the script for the film went through like many, many redrafts. Yes. yes. Well, I think you were saying that, you know, it was going to be like originally like Kevin wasn't going to be involved in a drug deal. But, yes. you know, it, it turns out to be in the redraft comic book deal. <laughs> yeah. But I think there are these wisps of like this dark in New York. Yeah. Like pre-gentrification meatpacking district. Yes. Um, that the script just kind of, it's almost like they just forgot to edit that out when they went to go for a properly sentimental sleepover film. It's so true. And like, um, there, uh, as it says in that uh, Ringer article, Kevin Smith did a draft. Yeah. Carrie Fisher did a draft. Yeah. Like, even Kevin Smith in that oral history is so interesting on it. Kevin Smith is obviously the director of um, Clerks and Chasing Amy and, you know, kind of like... Stoner bro. Stoner bro, kind of edgy comedy, really owned mm-hmm. um, early noughties, you know, sort of bro comedies before um, Judd Apatow came and took over. Um, but he kind of talks about how it was amazing to him that it was about women. The article was written by a woman. The original first draft of the script was done by a woman. And then he says, and then the men just yeah. took over. Yeah. It's so interesting because it's like, that, and it's so visible because you can see all these drafts layered on top of each other. Um, the you know the track marks and there's, he, Kevin Smith says the one line that has remained from his script and he got paid a hundred k for <laughs> was the moment where um, Violet says to who's the the Russian tease Kimmy oh god I, I honestly I don't know I any know of their, their names, names. <laughs> it's very Spice Girls very like the Russian one yeah the, the, the mean one <laughs> the Tyra Banks one um, she says oh I think I'm in love with you you know, offhandedly, and then I think it's Kimmy, turns around to her and says, oh, Violet, I'm not a lesbian. I played in the minors, but I never went pro, which is a really funny line. It is funny. But I think... <laughs> so I genuinely, when I rewatched this film, I was expecting to find it more problematic yes. than I actually did find. I thought this is going to be a relic of like a very, very different time, which it is. Yeah. But it's not... It doesn't feel fundamentally Awful, yeah. dodgy. Like, it's hearts in the right place. But there is such... There's like this one throwaway moment as well as that where like Violet goes to hand in, you know, she has this like ridiculous idea of how she's going to like make it in the industry where she just turns up at record companies with some tapes and she's like, can I meet your CEO to like play on this tape? I've got a tape. And there's this awful line where a receptionist is like, look, like lady, I've got problems in my life. I, I love that monologue though. But she's like, 
I, you know, I've got like this going on and that going on. And like my daughter's just said she's bisexual. <laughs> As if it's like just another like terrible thing that's happened in her life. I know. I just so thought, like, weird. What is this? Like, what is this film's relationship to sexuality? <laughs> what indeed? Because it does go out of its way to tell you that uh, Violet has sex. It's completely heterosexual. And the yeah. two moments that gay people are acknowledged, mm-hmm. it's just like a throwaway punchline. Yeah. Just like a bit of pep to the script. A little, yeah, a little bit of seasoning. Yeah. A little bit of something, something. Um, that, that monologue, though, from that receptionist is... So funny. It's so well delivered. It's like, oh, where is her TV show? Because the way she delivers that line, which is a really odd line, is like, and then she tells me that she is a bisexual. Now, please, I am dying to know how I can make your dreams come true. So nuts. So funny to me. There are so many funny women in that film, which I'd kind of forgotten about. I hadn't realised until I rewatched it that, that there are so many, like, people that have become subsequently famous like female comedians in yes. the audience yes um what that girl from it's always sunny in philadelphia yeah, yeah. is there like it's such a grand bag of random people like melanie linsky who plays her best friend is like a very celebrated indie actress um john goodman obviously. yeah what is john goodman doing in that film like i'm so pleased he's there <laughs> but, but why is he did there? he just take a paycheck <laughs> I just feel like, yeah, like at that point he was playing these sort of surly, big d- working class dads so much. He was like, what's another one? <laughs> it's two days out of He's my life. so lovely in that film, though. Do you think? I like him. I, I found him quite a dark character this time around. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I honestly, I have to say, I think Violet totally enables any of his problematic side. Yeah. Where when she's like about to leave for New York and she's like, don't do laundry. Like, you know, you're terrible at it. Like, I'll come back and do it. And like, don't try and cook. Like, I filled the freezer with meals. Yeah. I think at one point he says, like, aren't I supposed to be the adult, like telling you how to go and like live your life in New York? I, I it's a very it's a I I hate the dynamic. <laughs> I find it very chilling the dynamic <laughs> because it's tell this, me <laughs> because it's this thing of like it's like so codependent. Mm. Um, it reminds me of the Atessa Marshvag novel Eileen, where it's just um like she's like insisting that he can't live without her, but she's leaving him, and she's in, and he's insisting that she can't go mm. and she shouldn't go and just don't go and, and oh, I just kind of felt he was like play acting, being gruff with that. Like, yes, but then he reveals later on that he crushed her mother's dreams. <laughs> he did. I forgot about that. Um, okay, so when she shows up for her audition, and I feel like she has about 15 shifts in this bar mm. before she actually works there properly. Um, I just laughed so much when Lil tears the arms off. Yeah. <laughs> so stupid. And then what happens in her audition... Um, well, she's introduced as Jersey because she's yes. not allowed to be called Violet because that's not sexy enough. Boring, yeah. Uh, she's escaped from a convent, apparently, yes. and she's tired of being the only virgin in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and then the crowd cheers. <laughs> then the crowd cheers. Yeah, and it's this fantasy of just like they're all line dancing on the mm. bar. It's like proper Broadway numbers that they're on the <laughs> bar. And when you read the kind of the oral history of how they did all those scenes, and they are absolutely like I have I've written my notes here. Oh, it's fun though, isn't it? <laughs> because it is, there's so much energy and yeah. verve 
and like it really renders the rest of the movie like kind of the, the love plot and the dad plot and even the singing plot <laughs> sort of a bit flabby because it's just you're having you just kind of want the whole thing to be montages of her ty- trying on clothes mm. and just the bar you know she's just so intoxicated by like the prospects of yeah. joining these women that just have fun all the time yeah she doesn't pass her initial audition but then she breaks up a fight with her ten dollars she does <laughs> she refuses to line dance because she doesn't know the steps yeah which is absolutely fair enough fair. those are incredibly choreographed dances Very and she's dismissed for not knowing the line dancing moves is that why she's dismissed yeah she says she's not going to get up and dance until she knows the steps which seems utterly fair yeah. enough um, and then she breaks up a, a fight with the $10. And uh, then she's allowed a second audition. Which she, she might have a bit of badass in her after She all. might, after yeah. all, little see something in her. <laughs> um, and then she goes for the clothes trying on montage, which I love. Oh, I love all yeah. those clothes I so much. I want everything. Everything. When Kimmy tries on that sort of um, Chinese silk mm. split thigh dress... Honestly, every single thing I want. And they're all Instagram outfits. They're all Instagram outfits. They really are. I loved it. And then there's like... I always laugh at it so much. When she's like wearing a sleeveless t-shirt and a midi skirt. Mm. Looks in the mirror and says, Forgive me, Father. I I have sinned. sinned. (laughs) It's like, how? What? It's like, the film really maintains... That what they're doing is really controversial. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're fully clothed, they're serving drinks, and occasionally they get up on the bar. But it really maintains that it's like a very transgressive act. It's such a pre-9-11 yeah. film. <laughs> <laughs> I do think, though, given that it is clearly a sleepover film, mm-hmm. it's like 100% a chick flick. Yeah. It does try and be all things to all people, though, because when she's in the mirror with that midi skirt, there's just like mm. some very gratuitous bits where she's like wearing these very this very small g string. Yes, and the camera is like lingering over her, like yes, taking her clothes off, and I just think like no, like this this is this film is for girls. Like we don't need that. Yeah, it's so weird that like she's the most conservatively dressed of all the coyotes. But we get so many things of her, like a lavender thong. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Just like hanging around her bedroom. Why? Yeah, like putting chopsticks in her hair and just like sashaying around. Yeah. <laughs> On her own. On her own, just feeling herself. Is it like, okay, is there anything artistically <laughs> relevant in all those like sexy violet scenes? No, I genuinely just think that's gratuitous <laughs> Hollywood filmmaking. There's not this thing of like, oh, you know, when she's she actually privately is a sexual person. No, we think it's just no. I don't think, no, I genuinely don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I just wanted to see if there was something in it. Um, what do you think of her songwriting? I mean, I absolutely love those scenes where she's like in her little rooftop songwriting area yeah. and she's got all these candles in the New York skyline that somehow haven't blown out at any point. She's just in her little, she's in her zone composing. I love it. I love it too. Then the like, when <laughs> that thing of like, oh, she's, um, you know, she's using her urban environment to create. Mm. And like, she sees a guy doing like hip hop dancing in his bedroom. She's like, oh, multiculturalism, <laughs> I can incorporate this. I know. Also the thing of like, she lives in Chinatown. 
where are the Chinese people? Yeah, it is an incredibly white New York. But I mean, that is just very, yeah, I think, of a piece for like Naughty's filmmaking. Yes, it really, really is. Um, but I just love those songs so much. And like, this is quite embarrassing, but uh, I was uh, I was learning guitar around this time. Mm. And this really... And I'd forgotten it until I watched it this time because... I, you know, I was, you know, writing a lot of songs like quite early and, and young and stuff and not showing them to people. And I always credit that to like an obsession with Avril Lavigne and mm. Alanis Morissette and people like that. But I had actually forgotten until this viewing how much that sort of like identity was formed by Violet on her roof. <laughs> <laughs> the loving you in the man I feel terrible for her. Apparently she learnt to play guitar. Yeah. For the film. She took... Um, like vocal lessons and wanted to record all of it. And I think they did record all the tracks and then they listened to it and they were like, mm, we might like overdub Leanne oh, Rhymes. I know. And she was terribly disappointed. Piper Parabo is someone I really wonder about. Mm. You know, like, it's funny because I was reading the Roger Ebert review of this movie and he didn't like it, which is fairly obvious why. I don't think any of the critics liked it. At no, the time. I think it got some like hideous reviews. It really did, and like most of those reviews are quite fair. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They're not wrong. They're not wrong. Um, but there's something he says towards the end is like, you know, this will be sort of like a, a footnote in in Piper Parabo's mm. what I'm sure will be an illustrious screen career. Mm. It's quite sad because it wasn't like this yeah. is what we know Piper Parabo for. You know, they did her dirty. They did her dirty, and like. She's one of those actors who, and Samantha Mathis is another one, where I always look at her and think, like, did you refuse to have sex with the wrong people? Oh, God. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's what it feels like. It's like ev- you are in this huge movie, everything to play for. And, and she is incredible. She's great. Yeah. She carries the movie. Like she, And it's like, it's a bit like that Anne Hathaway role in The Devil Wears Prada, where it's like, it's it's a boring role. And it's the, the, the entire point of the role is so, you know, other characters, bigger charisma mm. can bounce off of you and you can be wide eyed about it. And so it's a really hard type of role to pull off. Mm. And she does it. And she's like compelling. And you want to be her when you're a teenager. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely did. Yeah. That hair. Yeah. Yeah. She has this kind of like sort of. Julia Robertsy type of She part. does yeah. look so much like Julia Roberts in yes. that film. Yes. Her and um Amanda Potter, who was in Head Over Heels, mm. were both doing kind of a Julia Roberts impersonation thing. Which I guess does mean Elizabeth Gilbert has been played twice by <gasps> Julia Roberts ish. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, is that true? <laughs> um one thing I like about um and um, I both like it and I'm confused by it considering they overdubbed all of Piper Parabo's mm. vocals. I like that Violet's vocals are fine. Yeah. She's a fine voice. But she doesn't want to be a singer. You know, she's like reluctantly singing. Yeah, she just think, wants to songwrite. Yes, yeah. exactly. Which I really like. I quite like that because I feel like, wasn't that what every girl was supposed to want towards the end of the 90s? Like, yeah. everyone wanted to be a pop star. And no, she just wants to write other people's songs. That's where her talent lies. Yeah. 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 And like... There's a really like sentimental moment in the movie that really works for me where she talks about, she's talking to her boyfriend and um, about Kevin, Kevin Mr. O'Donnell, <laughs> um, where she says, 
and he's like, why do you want to be a songwriter? And he said, she says, I remember the first time my mother played me the Bridge Over Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. And I remember exactly what she looked like and exactly how her hair mm. smelled. And now I listen to that song and I know exactly what she looked like and exactly how her hair smelled. It's that like, is a really nice line. <laughs> it's really moving, isn't it? And like the specificity of it being Bridge Over Troubled Water mm. like really makes sense somehow, you know? It's really lovely. And then we have... A nice long montage of her just getting slowly better at, <laughs> at working at Coyote Ugly. Which I like. Yeah. Just her, you know, making drinks slowly better. And no one cares that she's like smashing bottles. Yeah. yeah. No one cares. And then eventually we get to this point where there's like, this is this is one of the maddest flights of fancy of mm. the entire film. Where <laughs> there's a really wild night and like you know it just got out of control and men are like climbing over the bar and stealing alcohol and they need to do something or the, they're going to get shut down and Violet gets on top of the bar yeah. and starts to sing <laughs> one way or another <laughs> but i think as well like one of the one of the bartenders is being like carried off like despite her very vocal protest by like yeah. a group of drunken sailors yeah and there is like the entire purpose of the scene is to convey uncontrollable danger but for, yeah. like somehow there just isn't that much of a threat in the yeah. film I don't really I can't really describe the strangeness of like isn't like it just objectively is like a load of drunk men like preparing for a sexual assault yeah. but the film treats it very lightheartedly yes. and then Violet gets up on the bar and starts singing and I do feel like this is like I mean like I enjoyed this scene like I'm not saying I watched it in this very po face way but like rationally <laughs> That is the most extreme distillation of like the ludicrously optimistic hopes of that kind of tail end of third wave feminism. That like, yes. you know, men are dangerous. Okay, there's this dangerous scene in the bar, but if like, if Violet can just find a way, if she can just find that like mode that is going to control all the men around her yeah. and get them to look at her and not be able to look away, then like all will be fine. Women will be in control again. <laughs> yeah, if we can just mesmerize them with our gifts, yeah. then we will. Yeah. So she picks Blondie, which is just a perfect, perfect choice for that moral dilemma. And it's so, I just like, okay, the idea of, it, it feels almost like a Greek myth or something. Mm. It feels like some kind of like fall of a great empire. It's like, ah, and then, and then a goddess came down and everyone was transfixed. Like and the men are genuinely hypnotised, like... <laughs> You know, for all the kind of like undertone of them being like very gropey and carrying bartenders off while they're kind of screaming to be put down, yeah. suddenly it's quite, it just goes quite wholesome again where they're like, oh, look, she's singing Blondie. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Isn't that nice? And it's not as if like, if this were a thing where like, it was like a Tina Turner woman stomping up and down the bar and like, you would kind of believe that. Mm -hmm. You would sort of believe that everyone would just be so... No, but it's more it's more kind of folk culture almost. Like yeah. you know do you watch Peaky Blinders? I have seen it. There's like I think in the first series of Peaky Blinders, like um Tommy Shelby's love interest kind of like gets up on the bar and sings this like Irish folk song and like you know, all these men are just like deeply enraptured by it. it yeah. I think it's almost like a kind of yes. more traditional like actually like no, these men are all right after all. Like they still love watching a woman carry a tune. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's, it also makes me think of the um, the Titanic scene where Rose just gets up on her two toes. Yeah, and everyone's like, "Wow!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
You think you guys are so tough? <laughs> does this mad thing with her toes. Um, that brings us to her getting fired from the bar. Mm. Uh, and on, all, all through this, Kevin is trying to get her to sing and he's really pushing her to um, to perform her songs. And then... Do you think he's too pushy? Yes, I yeah, do. I do. Leave her alone. Leave the poor girl alone, <laughs> you know? Um, and like... The whole cardboard cutout scene thing. Oh my gosh, can we talk about that? Yeah. This this is extraordinary. So, like, to help Violet overcome her stage fright, Kevin takes her to, like, is it like a comic book store? Where is this space? I don't understand where the space is. It's some kind of space he's borrowed where he's just arranged some, like, cardboard cutouts of, like, David Hasselhoff and like Bill Clinton and Marilyn Monroe, just like a kind of Sergeant Pepper's like yes, cast yes. of famous people. And he's like, look, you know, they're cardboard cutouts, so you're like you're playing to an audience, but they're not real. So this will like help you overcome your stage fright. Like, yes. here's a keyboard, like, why don't you sing to me? But instead she just She's like, No, I need to like I need you to understand and empathize with what like how I feel. Is. Yes. So she starts to do a little strip tease where, like, the innuendo is that she's describing, like, how her stage fright works. She's like, you know, my heart starts beating fast. And as she's, like, taking off her skirt. It's just bizarre. It's so bizarre. (laughs) I would love to know, like, what the thinking was of that particular scene. Particularly when you consider this is a a script that was rewritten so many times by so many Mm. people. And, like, at what point were like, oh, no, that has to stay. I think they were genuinely just, like, we'll we'll show her in control. Like, she's seducing him. Yes. That makes it good. That makes it... (laughs) That does make it good. And this thing of, like... It kind of gets... increasingly ridiculous because it makes sense that she has stage fright when she's a girl from the city and she's very shy but then although she believes it to be genetic which I'm not (laughs) quite sure that's how stage fright works oh it's how it works is it (laughs) um and but then like she'll she'll do and that's kind of thing, she'll do anything but she won't sing her own Mm. songs It, it gets kind of increasingly ridiculous and um, then he gets her a slot at the Elbow Room, which mm. is a very famous mm. club. Um, and she can't leave work because it's too busy. And then uh, they have this whole fight, which, again, is a version of the script I enjoy. Mm. This, and this kind of central question of, like, you know, you think you're... You think you're, like, progressing somehow by... You know, singing with the jukebox every night. You're not actually pursuing your dreams, mm. which I always find those themes very um, interesting. I think, I think, and I think they're kind of weirdly universal for like millennial creatives, right? Mm. I think everyone has that thing where they've like, I remember feeling this way in advertising, where I was like, oh, if I can just make it as an advertising copywriter, that is that is enough adjacent to what I want to yeah. do that it's enough and it will be enough and I'll find it satisfying and then you never do and then mm. just kind of more time fritters away and you convince yourself that you've like feathered a nest somehow and you actually haven't. Mm. You've just given your best to something that doesn't matter and you don't care about. But she does She does deeply care about Coyote Ugly. She does yeah. deeply care about Coyote Ugly. She really does. And that, that scene when like you know, immediately after, really like the bad times really slam her in the face in that mm. act of the movie. So she has this big fight with Kevin, and then she goes back into the bar because he's after making a scene in the bar. Kev- and then Kevin punches a regular because yes. he was getting a bit gropey with her. Yes, which apparently she was in control of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and he, apparently he has absolutely no right to be annoyed about that. I'm not yeah. quite sure how to feel about that scene because mm. he says some unpleasant stuff to her about how slutty she's been, which yeah. like is just is not great. But also, she kind of says to him he has absolutely no right to be angry that like he's witnessed her being like really like aggressively sexually harassed. Like, yeah. of course he has a right to like yeah. express an opinion about like not wanting that to happen. Yeah, it is. It is difficult this this part of the movie because like it it suddenly has all the male characters coming in with their judgments about what she's doing. In between, her dad finds out that she works there. Um, Kevin's getting pissy about it, and she says that she basically has the right to be sexually harassed as long as she kind of is in control yeah. of it, which which is a inherently like oxymoron mm-hmm. of a statement. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, her, like her dad's screaming at her, he's ashamed of her. Yeah. It's really quite tough. And it's like, it's almost like for a minute, the film can't decide whether or not what she's doing is um, empowering or not, almost. I think it's just like another product of like the naivety at the heart of raunch feminism. Raunch feminism, I love it. Like she's just like, when she sees that her dad, her dad comes into the bar and she's like shocked. Yeah. So like like her first instinct is to be like shocked and ashamed herself. She does come in on a bad day though. And that, yeah, I mean, she's like... Covered in water. <laughs> it's like a wet t-shirt contest. It's not, the, it's not the best bring your dad to work day. Yeah, but like, so like her instinct is to be ashamed and like cover herself up and run to him and like apologise. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I hate this. What are you doing? But then she kind of just says to him like, you have no right. Yeah. Which, you know, like. He doesn't. He doesn't have a right. But like, there's almost like this expectation that he can't even be slightly annoyed about it. Yeah. That there can't, like there maybe needs to be like a slightly more nuanced conversation yeah. about like sexuality and empowerment but she's like no either like that it, it's an either or like either john goodman is ashamed or he has to be like completely sex positive about it and there's so no true. complicated middle ground that's so true I, I feel like like maybe instead of the um, cardboard cutout striptease scene like if at least one character had like any of the characters had an actual conversation about what they were doing yeah. and apparently those scenes didn't exist but were cut <laughs> For cardboard cutout scenes, um, but then it's almost like the film refrains from making a judgment because she has that thing with her dad and the thing with her boyfriend so close together, and then she's immediately fired. And it's like I was like, oh, it would have been like so much better if she went on working there, knowing the men in her life despised what she was doing. Yeah, but because she's immediately fired, it's like it almost like gets out of making its own judgment or making having her make up her own yeah. mind. But also she never has a chance to like have the experience of working there turn sour or like get yeah. boring. Yeah, true. She does work there for about four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Enough to buy a Mac and get garage band. I love that giant Mac. <laughs> I love that giant Mac. There was a real phase in in filmmaking where every character there was a moment where a character had to buy one of those big Macs. Yeah, to get involved in the internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this new thing. This new thing, the internet. Um and uh, yeah, then she gets a big songwriting break. Good for her. <laughs> God, can't fight the moonlight is such a banger. Such a banger. It's such an odd song. It's mm-hmm. like weirdly mid-tempo. Um, like it's so. It's such the sound of the noughties to me. Mm. Of the like the end of nineties pop, where everything had that vaguely computerized yeah. thing. Key change after key change yes. after key change. <laughs> Yes. And like, I do believe that like, oh, this would be the song you'd sell, you know? Mm. Um, 
And apparently it's like one <laughs> this will be another one for Australian listeners, of which there are many. Um it was number one in Australia for like an insane amount of time. Mm. <laughs> which I don't know why that is, but It's a classic. It's a classic. Um so Oh my god, that whole we we've went past it. That whole scene with Lil when she fires her, mm. and um, it's really good. It's just really good because she sort of you know said, "Look, you know, I made the rules. You broke the rules." And and Violet is like, "Why? Why are these things about the rules? Like, get real. It's, it's a just bar. a bar." <laughs> and Lil's like, "Why are you so upset then?" It's so good, isn't it? Yeah. It's the one like really good dialogue scene that happens in that bar. I think. <laughs> Do you understand why it's called Coyote Ugly even after the explanation? Not, I not really. I, I genuinely think that must have been retrofitted just because it sounded quite nice as a bar name. It does. It does sound nice as a bar name. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So, like, the story is that, like, it's a, you know, you wake up next to a guy, like a one-night stand so yeah. ugly that you'd rather chew your own arm off than wake him, than up. Wake him up. That's just not... It's That's not a plausible premise. <laughs> yeah, like... So... What I've, what's always confusing me is he the coyote or are you the coyote? <laughs> You're the coyote. I think like if you were trapped, you know. Do coyotes do that? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> do they ch- chew their limbs off? Yeah. Is that a thing? I think if they're trapped, yeah. <laughs> okay. But it's not what they're known for, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no. Or is it like, oh, he's so ugly. He's coyote ugly. Like he's like... Ugly he's as a coyote. U- no, he's not. He's not ugly as a coyote. The girls are coyotes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's true because they are coyotes. Yeah. It makes no sense. But then, actually, the film does kind of say it makes no sense because I think are- someone says to her like, "Why did you call the You're- bar coyotes?" And she's like, "Because Cheers was taken." Funny. She is so. There's something you said in your email when we talked about this movie, which was that like this idea that like. Lil is this matriarch of the bar and she's the only one who doesn't get up and dance. And it's mm. like, she's 35. She was 32, 32 when they filmed. But she, so apparently she had worked in like one of the bars, like not Coyote Ugly itself, but she'd worked mm. in like one of the bars they'd done research in. Yeah. So she had like danced. Yeah. Which I don't think they did in Coyote Ugly, like the bar before the film. Right, right. Um, so I think like the producers like hadn't put her in these dances and she was like, Yeah, but like I have professional experience about like of this, I wanna join in. And they said, No, you're too old. That's so fucking weird. But which I do think like we just don't talk enough about how massive this cultural shift has been in like yeah. how long women are allowed be to, to be yeah. sexual. Like I feel like this was like around the same time that Kylie's spinning around, you know, that amazing video yeah. of her in the gold hot pants. And I feel like all the media narrative of that was like, oh my god, she is so brave. This is so daring. Like a mature woman, yeah, you know, wearing such short shorts. But you know, I guess she's got it. So like, good for her. And, and yeah. how old was she? Was she in her 30s she was, as well? She was also, I think, like 31, 32 when that, that came mad. out. I remember yeah. thinking, though, like, I think we're the same age. You're, you're 31. I'm 31. Yeah, yeah. same. Um, like, yeah, when... when Because I was too young when Kylie came back with Spinning Around to know that this person was coming back from anything. Yeah. Like, I didn't remember the whole neighbour's stuff or anything. Um, so... She was like an elder stateswoman I felt to our she generation. Was an, yeah, I felt yeah. like she was my mum. I felt like she was a thing for my mum, and she was my mum's generation. Yeah. Like, I yeah, I felt like she, she was. She felt really old to me, mm-hmm. and so did um Anastasia. <laughs> Remember her? I do. Yeah. 
And like all these, all yeah, basically any pop star that wasn't nineteen, yeah, felt like an ancient strange. Yeah, beast. that would be like that. There was such an obsession with like female precocity, yeah, as well. Like definitely like conversations around Britney, yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. The film has such a strange. Re- it's not just that. It's not just Coyote Ugly, but the yeah. film has such a strange relationship with age. So like, you're at thirty two. You're too old yeah. to be sexual. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in like Naughty's cultural universe. Yeah. But then I think like one of the actresses who played the, the Russian tees, I think, yeah. I think she wasn't 21 when yes, it was yes. filmed. So she had to get like a fake ID to be able to like do research yeah. for the film. Leanne Rhymes, I didn't realize. 17. Like she, she cannot get into a bar to do like a yeah. gig, you know. But we're just expected to just view this all as like completely normal. It's so strange. By the time you're an adult, like, you're too old to be sexy, but we're just, like, accepting that, like... Yeah. Kind of underage people are allowed to play full adults because that's the only way in which we can, like, sanitise them being sexy. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was definitely this concept of, like, you know, the camera adds £10 in 10 years kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, because, like, you don't... That character you don't think of as being very young. I don't, anyway. When I don't think of, like, oh, look at that baby on my screen, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, it, it's really very strange. And this is also occupied the same moment where, like, Charlotte Church was, like, 16, oh, 17. That was, like, the countdown to her 16th birthday. Yeah. It was mad. And, like, basically the charting of her tits over the years mm. was, like... It was so insane, this idea that this, like... This child that for so long was almost hailed as being, like... Like, God's artistic pop culture channel do you know what I mean yeah. this voice of an angel thing this like holier than thou child performer the the, the quickness with which like tabloid culture wanted to wreck her like Madonna whore yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, she's kind of a dream guest actually mm. <laughs> to get her on I think she's have so much to say um, and I remember also the kind of uh, Emma Watson as well yeah. that whole thing of when will she be old enough so it's okay for her like, mm. it was almost like these tabloids were presenting a question that nobody was asking and forcing us to ask it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, nobody was sat there thinking, when's Emma Watson going to be old enough that I can, like, reasonably masturbate to her? No one was thinking that, but they just yeah. made us think it. But I just like the concept of virginity had, like, a bizarre amount of cultural salience. It really did. Like, it's it, it's so strange to me that, like... I mean, obviously, I wasn't an adult in 2000, yeah. but, like, I'm trying to imagine myself, like, being a young adult yeah, and just being asked on the one hand to be like oh yeah we're in this like very sex positive culture like yeah it's liberating for me to read Playboy and like yeah. get up on the bar and dance but on the other hand this like huge kind of cultural prestige being put on virginity, virginity yeah. which is what I quite like about Coyote Ugly because I feel like this is around the same time that like Britney Spears was being kind of asked to kind of embody this like teasing yeah. virgin kind of media stereotype yes and I quite like in Coyote Ugly like right at the beginning of the film she's like talking to her best friend in Jersey before she goes off to the big city yeah. and her friend's just like she's kind of doing this monologue about like oh we were always like the same because we had these big dreams but we've like never followed through on them yeah. she's like you know we said we were going to go to college and didn't we said we were going to like save ourselves until marriage and then we didn't <laughs> and it's just like a very nice throwaway line like, I feel yeah. like the film gets out of the way, like, any sense that we're going to be, like, obsessing over whether or over not whether she Violet's a virgin. Yeah, yeah. Which, which now the idea of that being something that's, like, revolutionary is is mad. Mm. But 
then but it was it was culturally unusual i feel yeah yeah it was culturally unusual um my god <laughs> i just can't believe this is an era that we lived through i know of. i can't i really do like sometimes look back and just think like it was the wild west like yeah <laughs> what was anyone playing at suggesting <laughs> that like this is i just that we grew up in this yeah that we're all just yeah. ma- like and i do feel like you know to be a woman is to have your own kind of cultural brain damage do you know what i mean yeah. like i think of my mother my mother's generation and how they were legitimately asked to go on the cabbage soup diet and that yeah. was supposed to be a normal and healthy idea kind of thing the idea of all those fad diets being sort of things you could easily just like buy in a um in a chemist kind of thing is crazy to me but i think but our- i feel like the noughties really brought that back do you think so yeah I mean, like, just the the thinness. Thin, yeah, yeah. Extreme. Of, like, public, w- women in the public eye in the noughties, I think, is extreme. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. And if you think about, like, I don't know, like, the first time our generation heard what a blowjob was, was because President Clinton got one from mm. his intern, and she was the bad guy. Yeah. Like, she I just... She was the seductress. She, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, like, really not until a couple of years ago did people start to reframe that story as, like, oh, no, this is, like, a young, vulnerable yeah. woman. Like, it, it it truly blows my mind that we were all brought up in this. Um, but at the same time, we were all asked to be, like, oh, well, like, feminism's been solved now. Like, yeah. we achieved equality. Yeah, do what you want, I guess. Yeah. Except not that or that or that. <laughs> Patriarchy, hell of a drug. <laughs> the weirdest thing about this movie, to wrap up, is that we are given so many scenes of John Goodman eating fast food and mm. being sort of vividly unhealthy, and then he's hit by a car. Mm. <laughs> What's that about? Why, are they, why do they tease the heart attack so much? Well, again, like, I feel... I wonder if, like, John Goodman's character is just, like, a confused rewrite across several scripts. Because I feel like what is underplayed is his role as, like, the impotent gatekeeper to NYC. Like, his job is to sit in a toll booth (gasps) and watch people going to the city, like, day after day. But he doesn't want his daughter to go. But it's kind of, like, his job to wave her through. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. (laughs) It's very beautiful. And then he's hit by a car. And he's hit by a car. Um, also, the the film is like quite old fashioned in the sense that it posits that like New Jersey going moving from New Jersey to New York is like this crazy thing to do. It's this very like Bruce Springsteen <laughs> <Yeah>. trope. <laughs> it really is. I think they do like name check the weirdness of that trope at the beginning of the film. There were her friends like she's moving like forty four forty two miles. <laughs> Mad. Also how, like, you know, New Jersey is apparently, like, this incredibly safe place where everyone's in, like, very, like, thriving, close-knit communities. And apparently, like, New York is, like, terrifying by comparison. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like a movie, like, written in the, like, late 60s or something. Mm. The idea of, like, New York, this, like, crazy dangerous place and New Jersey is, like, this lovely suburban Mm. community. It's a huge, huge state. Um, Then we get to the... her being in the songwriting competition... Mm. I guess the Bowery Ballroom is doing a thing. They want her in. And um, this kind of rallies everyone around the last. And I genuinely teared up a small bit when she was going through the, um, what's it called? The toll booth. The toll booth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they and they lit up the things yeah, for her. they flash all the lights for her. <laughs> nice. I like how like every single person in that film ends up in some small way, like enabling her to get to the Barry Ballroom 
and sing yeah. her song. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> and then they all close the bar to go see her. Yeah. I just wish, like, I it's the same in like um they do this in Back to the Future as well, where it's just like there's like we've all, we've had all this tension and all these stakes, and then you're like, okay, you, you, what what you want is the audience. You just want to just go and just mm. sing the song. And like it's like oh we have to have this like eleventh hour like car turnaround mm. thing again and she almost doesn't make it it's like I don't need this we've had so many stakes I just wanted to have a smooth ride to the Bowery Ballroom although she is to be fair just like from start to finish in this film just like genuinely unprofessional yeah she has done no research into how her how industry one does works this. yeah like she's late to everything she doesn't turn up to gigs like it is a miracle <laughs> that she makes it a real miracle <laughs> the whole thing of like she's so upset when like people won't take her tapes and like surely you only need to be told once yeah that we can, like literally we can't accept unsolicited material because then it could lead to like a da-da. like it's a it's a good policy it's that it exists for a reason <laughs> do you know what I mean and she just will not quit <laughs> that does feel very of its time though like you know, when like you try and get like your first job as a teenager, and your parents will be like, "If you just go around with your CV, it's just keep just keep so handing naive. your CVs in, and oh like someone god. will give you your break in the end." Oh my god, I was so that I was mm. so handing in CVs, and like even when I first moved to London, I was trying to get a job in the creative arts of just like turning up and like sending really elaborate like gifts with my job application. Yeah, I think there's this like hilarious mythology of like. The person that proved that they wanted it enough by like turning yeah. up at the desk like every day for a month until like it was too hard to say no to them. It's a real myth, isn't mm. it? Like we, it's one of the things you you because the people who tell those stories are the ones that made it, and they're such a minority. It doesn't really talk about like the deranged people who just keep showing up, and everyone gets them removed by security mm. and and all that. You know, it's and it is the sort of thing of like. It tries to make it seem like these extremely exclusive industries are, um, it's like a Wizard of Oz thing kind of thing that you have to just really prove that you want yeah. it. When actually, more often than not, it is like narrowing co- corridors of privilege and nepotism mm. that get people into those buildings, you know? <laughs> and that's depressing. But what's not depressing is uh, the final scene with Leanne Rhymes. Oh, God, I love it so much. <laughs> love it. I don't even care about Leanne Rhymes as an artist, really. Do you? I genuinely, until the other day, didn't realise that she'd started off as a country artist and that this was her. She did the Taylor Swift trajectory, yeah. yeah that she like wanted to go into like becoming like a straightforward pop artist, and I think her yeah. label were like no. So I think someone had offered her this song for the film, and she jumped at it. Um, but apparently, no one knew the song was going to be like big, yeah, at all, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's such a... It's weird because it's like, it's such a well-known song, but I don't think it's one of those movie songs, like, like it's not like Don't Want to Miss a Thing or something, yeah. you know? It's not like one of those things that's completely translated into, you'll see it in, you're here on the radio all the time still. It, it still very much exists in the context of this film, mm. you know? It hasn't, despite it being huge, it's not something you would just hear on the radio or hear on a jukebox or see on a mix somewhere, mm. you know? It occupies a very strange place. Karaoke classic. Karaoke classic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It exists so women can um, pretend to be in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, have you ever been to a karaoke ugly bar? I've not. It's genuinely not my thing. Have you? I have. Have you? Yes. <laughs> what um, do you think? Well, I went when I was 18. Mm. Uh, I was on holidays. My first kind of ever holiday with friends. 
um, in Magaluf. They have one, mm. and it's the whole thing. The whole thing exists so girls. It doesn't exist for men at all, yeah. which is funny. It's like a kind of hand party, like yeah, destination. Yeah. It exists yeah. so that you can feel like you're in the movie. Yeah, and it's such a funny transference because the whole idea of Coyote Ugly, especially in that Liz Gilbert article, is the idea that like we are taking your money. We it's a it's a cynical enterprise to milk as much money from men yeah. as we possibly can. I think there's actually a scene where she does milk a customer. She physically is- milks a customer. Like <laughs> yeah. he's got like a latex glove full of beer. Yeah, and then to have the reputation of Coyote Ugly go through the machine of this movie and then become a franchised bar mm. wherein it's not... like Because a, a guy would just go to a strip club or he'd go to Hooters, mm. right? It exists so women can feel like they can exist in the fantasy world of this film. Yeah. There's something kind of darling about it. Yeah, I think... I can't remember who it was in that oral history that we read, um, but they were saying like they've been to like do openings at Coyote Ugly since yeah. and they just really like... Just like watching women like get up on the bar, like not the bartenders yeah, themselves, yeah. just like reg- like people that have gone for the night. Yeah, like they said that, that it just genuinely seems like there is something quite liberating and empowering for people about it. There is, there is, yeah. Like I don't know. I just, I just can't dance. I think that's the only reason it's <laughs> not for me. <laughs> My boyfriend says I dance like um two pieces of seaweed under a rock <laughs> under the ocean, <laughs> just like wef- wafting around. <laughs> Um, I think if I could dance, I'd be straight on that bar. Yeah, yeah. I like. I do. I do. It's, it's it's kind of a strange kind of alchemy the film discovered. Almost the idea that like when women get on a bar, they feel different. It's a bit like wearing a wig or something, mm. or wearing glitter. It's like it does something to you yeah. <laughs> chemically. I think it's a bit like I went to an all girls secondary school. Mm-hmm. I remember, like, you know, we, we like we weren't supposed to wear makeup, but if we were, like, caught wearing, like, makeup or nail varnish or, yeah. like, rolling up our skirts, teachers would be like, look, there are no boys here. Like, who are you doing, who this, are you for? doing this for? And we'd be like, well, we're not doing this for men. Like, yeah. this is for us. And it was for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and really finding that sort of, like, sexuality that in a very contained and safe way when yeah. you're that age is a, is a real thing. Because I do think as well talking about this being a sleepover movie, it's like, when you, especially if you, were you sporty when you were a kid? Oh, not really. Me, not not at all. Not even slightly. Um, but like, so the first time I was aware I had a body was when, you know, when you're 13 and the first time somebody honks at you or when you're 12. Yeah. And it, it feeling scary, like really scary because you're just like walking home from the shop or whatever. But also kind of exhilarating because it's the first time you're really made conscious of having this thing that has power. Yeah. And the next sort of six years of your life are just about trying to wrangle that power in a way that isn't dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I do think that is part of, you know, a huge part of why this film will exist forever, you mm-hmm. know, or versions of it. I can imagine it will get remade and, you know, probably with like girl band members in the in the title roles. And it's just, it'll always have a thing at the centre of it that yeah. just makes sense and feel safe but also like a fantasy and all the women have each other's backs yeah that and that is the important thing isn't it mm-hmm. even like even the bitchy one played by Bridget Moynihan i.e. Natasha um, is like she's like an Amazon like she's a bitch yeah. but she you know you get a sense that she's like a law keeper you know there's something I feel like it just the film completely ignored the trope that was kind of compulsory in films about female friendship for a very long time which was Women are going to have to overcome their innate cattiness and jealousy of each other yeah. to realise that they can eventually work together as a team. Yes. But, like, there's none of that. 
in no. the film. And it's like um uh that that character, uh I can't remember the character's name, but I know she's played by Bridget Moynihan. She um she never like comes around to liking Violet. Well, she's just haughty. It's she, not, like it's not like any sense of rivalry or anything. No, she's just a hard ass bitch. She's just a bit of a bitch, and she thinks that Violet's a bit wet, and Violet yeah. is a bit wet, and they're never going to be friends. But they have a loyalty to each other. <laughs> and she does punch the guy who heckles her See? in the Barry Ballroom. But they're never going to get brunch, and that's fine. <laughs> uh, right, Hannah, we should probably wrap up. Uh, would you do you have anything that you're writing, working on? Would you like us to check out? Yeah, I do. I've just finished writing a book. Um, it's called Rural Nostalgia, A Backwards mm-hmm. History of Britain. Um, and it's a tour through five centuries of British history, looking at the way in which we look back to the past. So there's plenty of sentimentality in there. Oh, it's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, I should say it's out in May. Oh, it's out yeah. in May. With who? Uh, with Ebury. Oh, very nice. Thank you. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Gentlemen podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varrow for the mixing. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com